with Jackson Wolf, and you're listening to Friars on the Farm podcast. Oh, no. You say goodbye, and I say hello. Welcome to episode 209 of Friars on the Farm podcast. I'm Donovan, and with me is Roy. You say goodbye, but I say hello. Down, 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 down. Hello, hello. Oh, man. we've So today we're going to talk to Carlos Colazzo about the draft. He's Baseball America's uh, draft writer, but we also have the trade deadline to talk yeah. about. Hello to Carlos and goodbye to a bunch of guys that we've had on the podcast. Oh, man. <laughs> I feel like a bunch of our pros- uh, podcast mojo just walked out the door. And really, and well, the, I I love the podcast mojo because it it's you know those, those guys are going to get a better opportunity and probably more opportunity uh, in other organizations. And the kind of the shocker for me because I was I was kept paying attention, paying attention all day, but like the last hour I couldn't step away and I didn't see it until I got in my car. I'm like, holy cow, Ryan Weathers got traded. Yeah, yeah. So we've got we've got three significant moves that happened today. Uh, the Padres acquired left-handed starting pitcher Rich Hill and DH first baseman G-Man Choi from the Pirates for Jackson Wolf, Alfonso Rivas, and Estuar Suero. They got first baseman outfielder Garrett Cooper and uh, converted left-handed relief pitcher Sean Reynolds from Miami for Ryan Weathers. And then they picked up closer righty Craig Barlow from Kansas City for Henry Williams and Jesus Rios. So let's go one by one. Okay, so they picked up Rich Hill and G-Man Choi. They're both rentals. They're both one year. They're free agents at the end of the year for Jackson Wolf, Alfonso Rivas, and Estuar Suero. Now, now the big, you know, you, you see the Jackson Wolf, and you know we, we've talked about it before. We love the guy; he's a great guy. We're not sure, and I'm not sure if his stuff will play as a starter in major league in the major leagues. I, I think he's going to more profile as a, as a lefty specialist if they have those anymore. Um, but you know, he did certainly did pretty well on, in his one spot start after the rain delay uh, last week. Um, I'm more, you know, and Alfonso Rivas, he he was a minor league free agent. And Estuar Suero hasn't even got out of the complex line, you know, yet. Right. So. But but Suero is the one that of those three guys. So yeah, as you said, Wolf is kind of fringy on you know the stuff. <clears throat> does it does it really play? He's got a huge heart. The guy's a competitor. Every team wants somebody with that kind of makeup. Yeah. Uh, but the stuff just doesn't bump him into that surefire starting pitcher, major leaguer. And then the yeah. same with Rivas. He's kind of a four A first baseman. He's uh, I, I I don't like to use these kinds of phrases. It's a human right. being, but he's filler for a 40 man right. roster. Right. But Suero is a six foot five center fielder who's wiry and he's got the frame, the projectable that scouts just drool about. And so there were a couple of people that mentioned his name to me when I was down there in Peoria last spring, like keep an eye on that guy. So he's, He's just a guy out on the field yeah. right now, but right. in two, three, four years, he may blossom into something special. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the U Darvish trade is sending away Owen Casey and uh, uh, you know a couple of pitchers that that have left in recent in these deals that you look at it like, man, Harlan Susana touches a hundred miles an hour. What could he be? Well, right now he's not really much of anything. Right, he's figuring out an A ball. Yeah, you know, so, and having the, the predictable. Great starts, horrible starts, and control issues and pinpoint issues. So the, those young guys, it, it, they're lottery picks. Uh, same thing when we got yeah with the Darvish. I can't remember the kid we the the shortstop that we Reginald traded away. Preciado. Yeah, Preciado. Um, we he hasn't left the complex yet. I don't think. 
I'm more and when the overall thing with this uh this draft or not this draft <laughs> we talked to Carlos I got the draft still on my hand um with this trade deadline is I he pretty much did what I was expecting him to do even if we were you know gangbusters and deep in the wild card you know and we were doing great there wasn't much that you can fiddle with other than maybe some bullpen help maybe a spot starter um and and then and a bench bat so I'm not sure how much the philosophy changed um with how bad the potters are doing and you know are been well of late but you know there's not much there but I really I'm okay with the Rich Hill signing G-Man Choi uh, gives someone uh, uh Hassan Kim to talk to. Um, you know, occasional pop. Something he, he plays at a pretty good first base. He hits righties very well, and the team has struggled against righties. Uh Matt Carpenter, you know, God bless his heart, but man, that $12 million contract isn't looking very good right now. So now you've got somebody else in that designated hitter mix rather than just running out Camposano and Sanchez. Like right. one of them's behind the plate. The other one, stay ready, go hit in the cage between innings. Um, and then picking up uh, uh, Garrett Cooper. So you you they added kind of a DH tandem right there. Cooper yeah. can play a little bit of left field. I like the Rich Hill edition. Right now you got Michael Walker hurt. And so they're leaning a lot on spot starters. We've seen a lot of Pedro Avila, Ryan Weathers, Jackson Wolf, Matt Waldron. Um, you know, it was Reese Kinnear earlier in the season. Yeah. So now that that pushes all those guys back to AAA uh, where they probably are belong. And you've got a veteran that's taking the ball that fifth every fifth time. And then mm-hmm. once Waka's healthy, Seth Lugo, he's been outstanding. He pitched yeah. seven innings yesterday. But he's already coming up against his the maximum number of innings he's pitched in a season. So then you slide him to the to the bullpen, and now you've got experience, high leverage situations. You've got another guy out there that you can trust in the back of the bullpen. Yeah. Um, and then that brings up Craig Barlow, who's been kind of a part time closer for Kansas City for the last few years. Uh, you know, really good pitcher. This year he's not having such a good year, but I it's got to be hard to be a closer on a last place team. Yeah. Yeah. So you bring him here, give him the Niebla treatment, a little tweak here and there. And now you've got another reliable fire breathing reliever out there, uh, which has been one of the weaknesses of this team. Yeah. Absolutely. And and to get him for, you know, Henry Williams, who's coming off Tommy John surgery, a friend of the podcast, um, you know, is another year away from getting fully healthy and having a, a season where they can really get a chance of what he can do. Um, he's shown flashes of it this year, obviously, but this year is mainly just to kind of get healthy. And Jesus Rios, I don't even know who that is. Right. I same thing. I saw the name and actually in the Padres press release, they misspelled his last name. They left the S off. It said Jesus Rio. And I'm like, who the heck is Jesus Rio? So I looked him up and he's been in the DSL. They signed him as a as a I think they signed him this calendar year as an international free agent. He's 21, an outfielder. I totally scratch it lottery ticket. Maybe he's one of these guys that their international scout said. I really like that guy and they weren't able to, to sign him. And now they're, they're getting him kind of like how Padres got Tatis all those years ago, uh, but on a much you know lower level lower um, level. So yeah, you're giving up Ryan Weathers and Ryan Weathers, you know, as much of a friend of the podcast as he is, he's yeah. really struggled here. Yeah. And if there was anybody in the Padres org that could use a change of scenery, 
I felt like it's him, you know, get some different voices around him, get some different environments and maybe something's going to click and he's going to be able to find that next level. And then on top of that, he'll have the opportunities in Kansas city. He might slot right into their major league rotation. Who knows? Similar for Henry Williams. They're going to be able to clean, clear the deck for him when he's ready. They can push him as aggressively as they want to where with the Padres, this team wants to contend every year. They're going to be making yeah. big additions everywhere. So prospects are going to be blocked. They're not going to have that opportunity to come up and struggle for three or four months to find it. Yeah, definitely. And I'm a big Gary Cooper fan. Garrett Cooper, he hit a bomb against us. Um, Gives you really good at bats. Um, I think that's a huge, that's going to be an underrated kind of trade guy that we got. Um, And he's going to fit in real well. Weather is in Miami. It's closer to Tennessee, you know, so, like you said, a bigger ballpark, just maybe a different setting. Um, we want him to do well. Like, I, he's a great kid. You know, he's a great guy. Uh, he has a future in Major League Baseball. You know, when he first got drafted, one of the things that some of the evaluators were saying is, like, he's probably going to be a bullpen guy. And it is kind of trending towards that. So, I think maybe in a bullpen role, he certainly could be um, an impact and high leverage bullpen guy. But, you know, the Padres wanted him as a starter and he had his chances here to become a starter and it's had mixed results. Well, his dad was making some pretty compelling arguments why he needs to remain in, in a rotation wherever he's at. Uh, but yeah, Garrett Cooper, great addition, kind of a similar yeah. profile to Will Myers, right-handed hitter, plays first base, outfield, either corner outfield positions. He's played a little bit of third base, I think, in the distant past, but he's going to be DH first base, play a little bit of outfield. I mean, you don't really need a whole lot of help in the outfield as long as you've got Soto Grisham Tatis playing every day. Uh, but the Padres have needed help at first base and DH, yeah. and they went out and got help in those two positions. Um, so then the other guy that we haven't really discussed here is Sean Reynolds. Um, so he's six foot eight. He was an outfielder, he was drafted as a first base outfielder. He's a lefty, so six foot eight, thrown from the left-hand side, and I understand he's touched a hundred. He sits in the mid-90s and regularly touches 98. Uh, converted pitcher. He's got a slider. It sounds like the shape is improved as time has gone by, you know, being a fairly, fairly new to pitching in a professional level. Um, he's already on the 40 man roster. He's in triple a, I suspect we're going to see him before the end of the year, but I mean, six foot eight throwing that kind of velocity. Uh, that's, that's some scary stuff out there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, he'll probably get slaughtered right into El Paso. Yeah. 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 I think they already yeah. assigned him to El Paso. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, an interesting day. So one thing I'm a little surprised is the, the price that they paid for Hill and Choi. You're getting two rentals back. Uh, they're both, they both have kind of medium contracts and they're both being paid like five, $8 million on the year. So you're giving up three players. One of them is kind of a blue chip lottery ticket and Jackson Wolf slots right in uh, to that triple a major league shuttle guy role. I kind of expected to see some money change hands because I know the Padres are getting right up against the collective bargaining tax threshold. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. You know, it's uh, it's interesting that Brother gave up so little, and that's kind of the big thing here. It's like he gave up such little, and there's such depth in our in our system, despite what all the national writers say. There's a ton of pitching depth in our system, and he kept most of it. He kept all all of it, really. Yeah, yeah. And you're losing Wolf and Weathers but neither of them are really impact guys on the 40 man. Um, there was one 
casualty, one uh, what collateral damage uh, they designated for assignment. And dang it, his name just escaped my mind. I don't have it written in front of me. Um, infielder that's been bouncing up and down from El Paso. Ah, come not, on, Roy. not Tucker, not Tucker. Um, oh God, I saw it too. You know, I I I don't know. I forgot. But that's I mean that happens all the time. You you get DFA'd. You don't leave the organization. You just get dropped off the the forty man, right? It was uh, Brandon, um, not Brandon Dixon. Yes, Brandon Dixon got designated for assignment. Yep. Ah. So <laughs> that's that's the collateral damage. But same thing. He's he's a fringe major league kind of a guy, and you're replacing him with Garrett Cooper, who's got years of experience. He's got serious thump in his bat. Yeah. Um, he's going to be a hard out every time it comes up. So it's it's it really is an upgrade, but it's a bunch of upgrades at the fringe of the roster, which is what a lot of the writers were thinking they were going to do. And I don't necessarily, you know, this doesn't, this also screams not sellers and not really buyers, like kind of staying pat, filling a couple holes. We didn't need even if we were blowing out, you know, we didn't need to to trade Snell. We didn't need to trade Josh Hader. We weren't going to get that much in return from those guys that were going to be too impactful more than we need them for the rest of these next two months. Right. I mean, they, they really do believe that they are contenders. You look at the team on paper, and they absolutely should be. You look at them three out of four nights and they look like they are a, a playoff contender team. And then they go up to Colorado and they lose a 10th inning game. They have bases yeah. loaded top of the tent. They can't get anybody in and lose to the Rockies. So it's, they've just got to figure out how to get past that hump. So reinforcing the bullpen, reinforcing the bench, maybe shaking up some personalities around there. Maybe that'll inject some, some, some fresh life into it. I don't know, but you know, as a Padres fan, I like it. I'm still, you know, kind of reserving my enthusiasm. Um, last year, we got way out over our skis on being excited about the team, which was <laughs> deserved. We haven't had something to cheer for in decades, and now it's all right here at our feet. Well, now, yeah. I, I, I need, I need to see the team finally start doing the things that we wanted them to do before I can jump back on that bandwagon, you know, with all of my heart. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this year, this year, this time last year, we got Juan Soto, and it was just insane. Oh yeah, yeah. Juan Soto and Brandon Drury and uh uh the first baseman that came over from but that that first game was so electric. Like, oh my god, we can't believe these guys are here. And oh yeah, Brandon Drury, they picked him up from the Reds too. Grand slam. Yeah. Oh my god, blow yeah. the doors off. We're and not gonna have that same kind of experience. Uh the next home game is gonna be like, okay, here's the new guys. Applause, Rich Hill, okay, Craig Barlow, okay, welcome. Uh, it's not going to be the full fanfare, uh, but nor should it be. You know, these guys are yeah. here to grab their lunchbox and go to work. Yeah, absolutely. And with our defense, I think Rich Hill does really, he, he's going to do well here because, you, know, so. you know, all the Padre fans just think the last outing that we're, we kind of got him out of the inning. And I think we got him out of the game in like the second and third inning. Um, normally he pitches, he's crafty. He moves the ball around and he gets through guys and he eats up those innings and gives yeah, the team how- a chance to win. How many starts did we have Ryan Weathers or today Pedro Avila going out there and you're praying that they can get through right. three innings? Right. So exactly. Now Rich Hill goes and when, when he's bad, okay, yeah, that's what you're going to get. But there's just the same chance that he's going to go out there and give you five plus and keep you in the game. Yeah, That's absolutely. all you can ask out of a number five on the rotation. Absolutely. So let's move on now to MILB news. 
So Jeff Sanders, so, so what the Potters have done recently is, is they've, they've converted, uh, we don't know for how long, but they've certainly converted Jairo Iriarte and added Mazer into the bullpen. And Jeff Sanders did a write-up earlier this week on it, and here we go. So yes, the Padres still see Jairo Iriarte and Adam Mazer as starting pitching prospects. We do think it is good for these guys to experience what it's like coming out of the bullpen, said Padres assistant farm director Mike Daly. At some point, when they do make it to the major leagues, that might be the role they're in initially. Keyword initially. And we think from a workload management aspect right now, it can be balanced that for a little bit. The Padres' second-round pick last year out of Iowa, Mazur started the year with 47 strikeouts in 58 innings with a 2.02 ERA in high A Fort Wayne. The 22-year-old allowed five runs in his two uh, three and two-thirds innings in San Antonio's bullpen, but he struck out two in a scoreless frame in Frisco on Sunday and is scheduled to pitch in relief again on Thursday. As for the tick-up, Mazur was sitting 94.3 uh, 94.3 miles per hour at Fort Wayne and averaged 96 with his fastball in the third relief outing. So the shorter time, higher velocity. Likewise, with Iriarte's velocity, has ticked up from 95.4 to 97 Woo! in San Antonio's bullpen. He struck out a batter, a batter in a scoreless frame on Thursday and is up to eight strikeouts over six shot innings since his promotion to the Texas League. He has allowed one hit and one walk. And Iriarte is what? 20 years old, maybe 21? Oh, yeah, he's a baby. Yeah, he's a child. Iriarte's pitch mix isn't as developed as Mazur's, a college starting pitcher, but his developing low 90s changeup remained a focus at Fort Wayne, especially against left-handed hitters, although it is behind a mid-80s slider that has been long-pegged as a potential weapon in the bullpen if he ever, if he never reigned in his command. Uh, Iriarte is 21. Iriarte has lowered his ERA from 5.12 while throwing 91 and a third innings last year in, in Lake Elsinore to 3.1 while striking out 77 batters in 60, 61 innings to start the year in Fort Wayne's rotation. He was, however, still walking just over four batters per nine innings as he did with the storm last year when he was pushed to San Antonio's bullpen to manage a workload that jumped from 30 innings in 2021 and was on pace to blow past last year's career high total. So one thing that has that has me wondering. So what we don't see is how their pitch mix changes. You don't get a whole lot of data on that with the minors. Yeah. Uh, but for somebody like Iriarte uh, and for Mazer, they'll have, especially by the time they get to Double A, they'll have a couple of pitches they feel pretty good about, and then one or two more pitches that they're still working on refining, figuring out how to land it for strikes, figuring out how to work it into their repertoire. So as a starter. You know, at what point do you start throwing that third pitch? Do you use it as a strikeout pitch? Do you save it until the second or third time through the rotation? You put them into a, a bullpen situation. And it's like, you know what? Dump that third pitch. Yeah. Just breathe fire, go with your best weapons and let it eat. And you're not trying to nibble. You're not trying to induce weak contact. You're just trying to mow guys down. I, I would think that for some of these guys, there's like a little aggressiveness click that that can happen yeah. and kind of unlock something that they that aggressiveness uh you know the, the, there's no more tentativeness there's no more right. nibbling there's no more trying to save your best stuff for later in the game it's just bring it here it is yeah the, the attack they have to attack and they have to get out early and quick not try to get the strikeout but just powering through guys and attacking the zone absolutely yeah you're not so worried about oh i need to get quick outs uh, you can go ahead and use six, seven, eight 
pitches on a guy because you're trying to mow him down and strike him out. And that's a different approach. All right. So interesting to see how those two guys work out. So the next point we've got on here, Ethan Salas, every week he does something that just takes it to another level. Now he's the Cal League player of the week. He slashed 455, 455, 909 with 10 hits, three home runs, and six RBIs in Stockton to earn his first Cal League Player of the Week award. That's insane. I, I can't believe he's only went it once. Or <laughs> This is the first time. Well, he's only been up for how many weeks, you know? <laughs> he, he's he's a Player of the Week every year in our hearts. In our hearts. he's Yes, he's the player of our, of our heart. But, you know, you'll hear later on with, where Carlos Colazzo is like, we asked him, like, what do you think of, like, who's the guy that you really stands out? And he mentioned Dylan Lesko, but we went on and on and on about Ethan Salas and, and what he's doing. You know, the the hyperbole is just through the roof, but it, it just it's it's warranted. And yeah. it's, it's being shown every day that the guy is just he's come as advertised. Yeah, I I I. I just hope the hype train continues yeah. and you know, that, that it doesn't wind up going to his head. Um, I mean, he seems like he just, he shows up to the field to do his thing and go to work. And, and when the ball is in play, he makes the right decisions. He's hitting the ball hard all over the place. I, I just, the sky's the limit for this kid. I, it, yeah. it's, it's something else. I need to get back up to Lake Elsinore. It's been probably a month since I've been up there to see it. And I don't think he even played in the game that I went to. I got a little bit ripped off because of that <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not bitter. <laughs> no, you're not. Not at all. It doesn't sound bitter at all. Sarcasm. <laughs> I identify with that. Hey, so let's let you uh, throw you off over into the Carlos Colazzo interview. Uh, you guys enjoyed that. It's really good. Lots of good information on the new draft picks. And he gets really in depth in a lot of these guys. Hey, we're here with Carlos Colazzo of Baseball America. First time, long time wanting to get on the podcast. Carlos, what's going on? How's it going, guys? Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here and talk some drafts. Well, real quick, before we get, you know, today's the, the end of the trade deadline. And I always wonder, like, you see all of these guys from most of, you know, you see a lot of these guys that get traded. Um, Where is your heart when you see guys get moved around? Yeah, it's interesting because for me, I, I'm specifically covering the draft throughout the year for Baseball America. So I'll have some conversations with our prospect team for kind of top guys in the minor leagues. But for a lot of these players, they've changed so much since I've seen them in person. So I think the most interesting thing is like, seeing guys get moved who I had either very strong opinions on when they were amateurs uh, or who just have developed a lot in, in any direction, one or one way or the other. Um, just seeing that path is always very informative. I think when yeah. you're looking at players when they're 17 years old, like just knowing how much they have, how much they can change. I think it's always just useful to kind of contextualize just how, how long it takes for a lot of these yeah. players and how different they can be based on what we expected them to be. Yeah. As fans of a particular team, we obviously get attached to the guys that come up through the Padres system. And I, I try to remind myself that they're moving on to a place where they may have more opportunities or you know, if they've been struggling here, maybe they'll get some help that they need elsewhere to take that next leap. Um, one guy that we've become fans of is Jackson Wolf, and watching him get traded over to Pittsburgh today stings a little bit, but then I... I had to remind myself he's from Gahana, Ohio. I looked it up. That's only three hours away from Pittsburgh. He went to West Virginia, which is an hour and a half away. So he's right back home in his home yeah. neighborhood. He's going to have an opportunity to pitch in the major league team a lot more often. Um, so that's sometimes we try to take a step back from being Padres fans 
And I'm a fan of the guy and I'm excited for him now that he yeah. might have some better opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. I think the thing that you had to remember too, if you get maybe the initial reaction, if you get traded is, Oh, your team didn't want you, but you're getting traded and, and some team wanted you in the deal. Like you were specifically acquired. So I think for a lot of these players, it can be a nice fresh start. Obviously certain organizations have more innings available or more playing time available. So hopefully he does get to move a little bit quicker and kind of being closer to home has got to be cool for him as well. All right. So let's get moving on the draft. Yeah. So this year's draft for the Padres was a little different. We're used to seeing the Padres get a lot of picks up front this year. They lost their second and their fifth round picks due to free agent acquisitions and budgets and all that stuff. Um, how do you think that affected the Padres overall strategy? Yeah, well, they were one of the teams. I think they used the most common strategy in the draft, which is to save early on your players and then spend later um, I think there are a couple different strategies you could take if you're missing picks early on, but that seems to be a common one kind of idea player you like in that top 50 ish range, get them on an underslot deal early, save some money. And I think the Padres are actually one of the most aggressive teams on day three. So on day three, you get $150,000 to a signing bonus that doesn't count against your pool. So you can get some pretty talented players down in that range and basically save 150,000 on their bonus just to try and get some more talent. The Padres did that really aggressively in the 11th, 12th, and 13th rounds. I thought um, it was interesting to see them this year. It really felt like they prioritized defense, like premium defensive profiles in this draft. There are a number of players, Dylan Head, Homer Bush, Nick McClary, who is their 10th rounder. Like a lot of players in this draft class have really strong up-the-middle profiles, defensive tools, speedy guys. And even John Daniel Gonzalez, their third rounder, he's not necessarily the, the speediest guy, but he's got a massive arm from behind the dish. So it's a lot of up the middle players, questions about impact with some of them. Uh, but I always find the Padres drafts fascinating because they're an organization that's just never scared to go for a demographic that other teams in the industry perceive as risky. Uh, and I think their scouting process is, is maybe the most thorough and in-depth and impressive to me that I've experienced in the industry. Just just with talking through uh, with scouts over the past few years. So um, I think it's exciting. I'm really excited to see. I, I basically think Dylan Head is like a Enrique Bradfield in high school with a more advanced offensive game and fewer power questions. Um, so that's an interesting one to start things off with, I guess, in the in the first round. Yeah, so you mentioned J.D. Gonzalez, and he's a bit of a question mark to a lot of people. I, he was written up by a handful of guys, um, but being that he's from Puerto Rico, he's a little bit off the off the grid, if you will. And I understand he's coming off of a, a knee surgery, so they put him right on the sixty day. Uh, they did rather than assigning him out to, um, you know, to the AZL or an affiliate. Um, mm -hmm. What can you tell us about him? Yeah, he was the top-ranked Puerto Rican prospect we had in the class. It wasn't a fantastic year for Puerto Rico. I think the last few years we haven't had any kind of standout talents at the very top, but he was always the first name who came up when I would ask scouts who, who scouted the island, who were the most talented players. He always stood out. I think it's it's probably really exciting defensive upside with him. He's got one of the better throwing arms in the class. I saw him at the MLB Draft Combine. And it was a double plus arm at, at that event, just in terms of pure arm strength. Now he's going to have to refine um, some of the accuracy there, some of the actions with his footwork, but it's a really lean frame. Now he's strong. I think he's going to get stronger. He was 17 years old at the draft. Biggest question is probably going to be offensive. Like what is he going to be as a hitter? He's pull happy at, at times. He does have bat speed. It's quick and whippy from the left side. So there's some tools there. Um, but just the fact that he wasn't on uh, the national radar 
for a ton of events, you probably have less conviction in the hit tool. Um, but I think he has really exciting tools to stick at the position. Um, and again, it's a good body. The The knee injury sucked. I was curious to see like how he was improving this spring. And I made some early calls and they're like, well, he hasn't played too much. He's dealing with, I think it was an ACL injury to his knee. Um, but it's a, it's a really impressive athlete. And, and the arm is probably the carrying tool here. Well, you know, so I saw a clip of him like fielding a, a, a play right in front of the plate. Uh, you know, that's putting a lot of stress on the knee. How is he moving around in the in the the combine? He looked good. I wouldn't have been able to tell from that event that he was dealing with any injury. He moved around pretty fine. He he squatted behind the dish pretty well. Um, and like I said, I think he showed maybe the second best uh, just natural arm at the event behind Connor Burns, who's probably the best catch and throw uh, receiver in the class. So I thought he looked pretty good all around in the workouts. So natural arm by that, you're you're just talking pure arm speed. You're not talking pop time, how long it takes him to get out of the crouch and into position. You're just talking. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just pure kind of power on the throws, like the carry on his throws is tremendous. I mean, he did have really impressive pop times because the throws just have so much strength and force behind them. But he also definitely was erratic around the bag, I think, in those environments, especially for the high school players. They're trying to show off the arm. I mean, that's why they're there. You're, you're scouting the tool. So I don't think... Scouts will probably be too concerned over him being a little erratic in that sort of environment. But those are the sort of little smaller details that he'll need to iron out. Um, and especially for a high school catcher, those players take typically take a long time to develop in the minors. They've, they've got to do so much work defensively. It's such a grind physically. They have to know how to call games if they haven't called games before at the high school level, which many of these players don't, on top of uh, maybe the hardest thing to do in baseball, and that's learn how to hit at a pro level. So there's just a lot that's thrown at them. Probably will be a slow mover, I would imagine. Um, but yeah, he's got a chance to really lock down the run game. And as we're seeing with baseball uh, today, that that's a very valuable skill to have. Yeah. My question is, this is the first guy I've ever seen drafted out of Puerto Rico. Um, what is the competition like down there? And, and, and what are your thoughts on maybe, you know, it's... They don't get scouted a lot down there. And I wrote, mm-hmm. we had an article here on the on the podcast a couple of years back where they wanted, they talked about maybe having Puerto Rico be in the international draft since it's such a different program down there. Yeah, both Puerto Rico and Canada are, are kind of the unique um, sources in the draft where they are subject to the draft. I think it's pretty normal for the teams. Like they, they certainly don't get as much attention in the media just because they're not consistently at all these events. Although John Daniel Gonzalez, he was at perfect game national last year. So um, that's the first time I saw him in person. I I don't remember if he was at a ton of other events. There's always a one big week during the spring. uh, That's kind of the, I'm not sure. I think it's in March or April where a lot of scouts go down to Puerto Rico and you'll kind of see all of the best players in more of workout environments, I, I think the biggest challenge with Puerto Rico, similar to maybe some of the other international prospects that are not subject to the draft, is just evaluating the hit tool is really tough. Right. Um, there are some prospects from Puerto Rico who have moved over to the States. Uh, a few players in the past have, have kind of gone to Florida or gone to schools in Georgia just so they can play against that, that petition and, and get seen from scouts throughout the spring, throughout the fall, a little bit more frequently. Um, but I don't have any doubt in my mind that the Padres did a ton of work on him. I imagine they felt pretty confident with him, obviously signing him to a $550,000 deal as their third round pick um, speaks to their confidence in him. So he wasn't an unknown player, but I do think if you're kind of following the draft, the Puerto Rican players and the Canadian players can be trickier to kind of get a feel for. For me, I have to rely on scouts a lot for those just because I can't put eyes on them as much. Yeah. I saw that baseball America had him ranked 
214th on their big board, their 500 board. Um, Major League Baseball, they had him at 213, right next to where you had him, and then taken at six, 96th overall. So they were able to save about 150 grand on that pick, uh, you know, under slot, as you noted. Um, so they took a center fielder first, uh, first round. Then they took another center fielder fourth round with Homer Bush Jr. Um, Bush is a college guy, heads a high school guy, but it sounds like they're both speed first kind of, you know, elite defensive athletes kind of speaking to what you were saying about defense first. Um, mm-hmm. Did you get a good chance to get a look at, at Bush? What do you think of him? I didn't see him as much as I saw him uh, as I saw head, excuse me, in person, but I did get to watch a decent amount of video of him. The one thing that that jumped out to me with Homer Bush, because uh, he was also at the combine. So I saw him a few weeks before the actual draft. He looked a lot more physical than I was expecting him to look. Um, and maybe it's just getting on the field and getting getting close up and seeing these guys. But I'm really intrigued to see how the power develops for Bush, because entering the spring, he was sort of this pick-to-click player for many scouts. They really like just the foundation of athleticism, the speed that you mentioned. I think there's really, if he's not a center fielder, there are going to be some problems. Uh, I think there shouldn't be any reason why he can't play center field. He's a great runner. Um, He's a good defensive outfielder now. I think he could probably become a great defensive outfielder if he improves the routes a little bit, improves the instincts. Um, He improved in a number of ways in in 2023. The strikeout rate he cut significantly. It was near 30% in 2022. That was under 10% this spring. He improved his efficiency as a base runner. So I think he's really just coming into his own as a baseball player rather than just an athlete. Uh, I think that was maybe the the criticism with him entering this year is he was just a really impressive athlete, didn't hit the ball hard. The exit velocity numbers are still pretty modest, but if he's able to add some strength to a pretty lean and wiry frame, maybe he's a guy who can get to like 35, 40 power. 40 power would probably be a little bit surprising just just given the physique and how the body looks. But again, he was more impressive um, just physically to me at the combine. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what the offensive profile looks like. If he can get to 10 to 15 homers a year, I think you have a really exciting player who's going to provide impactful defense in center field, maybe be a top of the order kind of table setting type um, as a best outcome for his offensive profile. So I'm, I'm hearing lots of scout type language um, yeah. as as a writer, but you're traveling around and you're looking, trying to look through the eyes of a scout, I'm sure. Do you find it hard to calibrate? So you say you're seeing a lot of high school guys and then you go to the combine and there's Homer Bush. He's three inches taller than head, but more importantly, he's two, he's three years older. So mm-hmm. he's going to look more physical because not only is he bigger, but he's also more mature uh, physically. Do you find it hard to, to recalibrate, like remind yourself how old guys are, what stage they're at? Mm-hmm. No, that's an important, I think that's a really important point. It's something you have to keep in mind. For me, I think it's kind of been ingrained in me at this point. I think it's going on like six or seven years now that I've been at BA covering the draft. So it's uh, it's something that I've learned over the years. But I do think that is the big challenge with these college players. Uh, part of the reason that college players have become so popular among the industry in general, if you just look at the trend of the percentage of players taken in the draft since the early, I think the mid-2000s, it's just increasingly gone college players because there's a lot of safety and not having to project physically um, as much as you have to do with high school players. And you also don't have to project as much just based on the talent. Like if you're scouting a player who's playing at Grand Canyon, which is not a power five baseball school by any means, you still feel a lot better about the quality of competition that a guy like Homer Bush is playing than a random high school in Indiana or Illinois right. where Dylan Head might be playing. So you just have more confidence in what the player is because he's closer to what he's going to be when he presumably is at 
at the HLB and the major league level. So there's just much less risk there. Um, but I think, and to the Padres, what they've done in the past, you can also dream a lot more on those high school players. I mean, typically the guys, especially the guys at the very top, the high school players in general are going to be more toolsy than their college counterparts, just because the top high school players never get to college in the first place. Um, the 2023 draft was strong in part because there were a lot more high school players like a Dylan Cruz who in a non COVID year in 2020 probably would never have been in college. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's fun for me to see them and compare them and to try and uh, keep in mind that there is a context difference here, just because, just because Dylan head maybe doesn't look as impressive physically doesn't mean that, that he's going to look the same in three years. And so keeping that in mind is, is super key. And I think one of the, one of the basic tent poles of scouting uh, on the amateur side in baseball. I just caught the, uh, this earlier this year, I caught Grand Canyon university and Homer Bush at the, um, I, I can't remember what tournament it was, but uh, I worked for UCSD. So I was watching mm-hmm. them play UCSD and they got a couple of blocks in that. The Grand Canyon university, their up and coming program. I think they had a couple of guys in the, in the top five that were picked. Yeah. Yeah, they had a number. Jacob Wilson was a first rounder. They had Zach Thornton, who's one of the better strike throwers in the class. So I think those three players, um, I don't remember exactly off the top of my head where Thornton went, but it was quite a strong year for them this year. I think they do a good job in general. Um, The conference in general is not the greatest in baseball specifically, but they've pretty consistently um, given teams some guys to scout each year. So I think they do a good job both with recruiting and with developing players over there. So I want to back up to something that you uh, you you mentioned a minute ago that the 2020 draft because of the shortened COVID season, it's related in it's it's resulted in a stronger draft this year. Um, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to Carson Montgomery that I understand he was one of the people to watch in 2020 and he elected to go to college. Um, so for those of us that are a little bit more on the on the outside, can you explain that relation between the 2020 draft and the 2023 draft and what that means for the guys that were picked this year? Yeah, absolutely. So in 2020, the COVID COVID happened. Obviously, everyone everyone knows what what COVID is generally because it impacted us all. But for the draft specifically, um, the draft was shortened to five rounds, which I think was the biggest aspect of this. And also, most players or all players didn't get a chance to have their full seasons. Um, and so for a lot of players, that meant they either were squeezed out of the draft because there are just only so many spots for high school players, especially who come with more leverage than college players, given their college commitments and just the fact that they have more options available to them. It meant that only the very elite of the elite high school players were drafted and signed. All the rest went to college. Um, and again, you, you didn't have the over slot deals in the fifth to 10 round range. You didn't have day three. Um, overslot signings to get some of these high school players out of the college ranks. So college baseball really over the last three years, because of that had much more talent than it typically does. And for most of those players um, after 2020, they're juniors in 2023. And so draft eligible for most of them, there are a few draft eligible sophomores who went last year. Um, but most of those guys became draft eligible once again, this year, Carson Montgomery, he was actually the highest ranked prospect that we had in the 2020 class who was in high school who made it to campus. Um, so there were very high expectations for him. He definitely did not meet those expectations throughout his career at Florida State. I don't think the stuff ever really played like we expected it to. Again, one of the risks of high school players at the time, um, not having the confidence in the competition they played. I think the biggest question with Carson Montgomery is just like, how does the fastball play? Uh, what is the shape of that pitch? Does he have any deception? Because he sits in the 92, 94 mile per hour range. We'll get up to 97 
at peak. Um, he looks fantastic on the mound. He's physical. It's a pretty solid delivery from a low three-quarter slot, um, but really just never had the performance. He didn't produce this year. It was a career low strikeout rate, career high walk rate, but there's still stuff there. So I'm curious if he can get into a pro situation, maybe make a few tweaks, maybe get a little movement on the fastball. Maybe it's pitch, uh, pitch selection questions because the slider is very good. I've heard scouts call that a plus pitch. It's got a lot of horizontal break. So there's stuff here. It's just he's never really put it together in college. And so you wonder how that's going to play in pro ball. But I think Montgomery is a good example of like the 2020 draft, how that impacted 2023 and just adding a lot of talent. Like he he maybe is the example of of the the way it can go poorly for you in high school. Um, Whereas Dylan Cruz would be like the ideal example, obviously. Right. Yeah. As a high schooler, he would have been lined up to sign you know, half a million plus, maybe, maybe a seven figure bonus. He wound mm-hmm. up taking a $200,000 bonus with the Padres. Uh, now, did I hear something that he was in the transfer portal? Was there something to that? Uh, I'm not sure. I, I probably wasn't too tuned into the transfer portal stuff at the time. Florida state has had a few guys get in the portal. Um, that wouldn't shock me um, just given how the season went for him, but I, I can't, I can't speak to that accurately at this point. I don't know. Gotcha. So right after him, they took Blake Dickerson, uh, six foot six lefty. Um, and then after that, they took Dane Leyes, a uh, what a, a right-handed pitcher out of Oregon, an Oregon State commit. I'm an Oregon State beaver. Go Beavs. <laughs> so a little bitter to see him pull out of his commitment, but he's with the Padres organization. So two high schoolers that were picked in the 12th and 13th rounds. Um, you mentioned earlier that the first $150,000 of that bonus uh, doesn't count against the pool. So that's interesting mm-hmm. that they went bang, 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 right, right off the bat and took three guys like that. Um, have you had a chance to see either Dickerson or Leas? I see you guys had Dickerson ranked 197. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had Dickerson ranked there. Uh, I saw him quite a bit. I didn't see Dane as much. He was a guy who kind of popped up late. Um, but we didn't have a ton of information on, so I would be able to speak to Dickerson more. He's a really tall, lanky, super projectable Left-handed pitcher, looks like six foot six, two hundred and ten pounds. Um, at his best, he's got three pitches that play really well, and he shows pretty impressive body control. Fastball around ninety, touches ninety two, ninety three. Uh, he's got a slider in the seventy nine to eighty three mile per hour range with solid break, and he's also got a solid changeup in the mid eighties. I think. With Dickerson specifically, because he's so long, at times he can lose the release point. The delivery can be a little bit inconsistent, and so that causes him to maybe scatter his pitches, maybe be less precise than he needs to be. Um, But he's also probably going to add a significant amount of strength, and it wouldn't be surprising for me to see him throwing mid-90s or touching mid-90s more consistently in the near future. Um, His track record as a strike thrower is fairly solid uh, in high school, so I think there is some... Some thinking that as he gains strength, as he gets to physical maturity, um, kind of get out of this like young growing into your body phase as a pitcher, he could take a lot of steps forward. So it's, I don't know if it's like a super deep projection pick here because we did think pretty highly of Dickerson. Uh, we did have him as a top 200 prospect and he was pretty well established on the national scene and the the travel ball circuit. Um, but there are just a lot of positive indicators and, and traits that you might like for a pitcher if if you feel confident in your player development, specifically on the pitching side. There are a lot of tools to work with here. Um, and I think it's a chance for an above average fastball and above average slider that are probably be his his carrying pitches. Yeah, we, you, you mentioned body control. And one thing that we've heard is like athleticism and how that relates to a repeatable delivery um, and as well as the other things that a pitcher needs to do to defend the position. Um, so is that, is that the kind of thing that you were 
that you were suggesting with the body, the body control aspect? Yeah, I think body control is, is massively important. I think in baseball specifically, you can be an elite athlete and not really look like a, a stereotypical athlete. I think Bartolo Colon is like an excellent example of this. Like no one, no one who who doesn't really know about baseball would look at him and be like, that's an impressive athlete. But if you watch how he moves on the mound, how he's able to control his body, the feel for his his arm in space, like repeating his mechanics. All of those things are massively important for pitchers and even more so than like the fielding. If a pitcher can fill this position, that's great. But like, ideally you're just locked into your mechanics. Uh, You repeat, I think just repeating your arm slot and your release point is just the most consistent thing because once that starts to get a little bit off, your feel for your breaking ball is going to back up. You're not going to be able to establish the fastball. You're going to just be, be behind consistently. And these hitters obviously are so good that they're going to punish you for that. So especially for long-limbed high school players, that tends to be an area of concern because you just don't know. Like not everyone is Noah Schultz, who's seven foot from the left side and has like this uncanny feel for his body. Not everyone is Mackenzie Gore, who's in the background, who's just like a supreme athlete. I don't think Dickerson has this elite athleticism or, or body control now. So just him developing better feel, developing um, more consistent mechanics in the future, I think will go a long way for him. And I think once uh, too, once, once you like add strength, uh, a lot of times these players just don't have the strength yet to do that consistently over a full outing. Um, So those are all elements that I would look for with him improving in the future. So I I see in the round six, we picked up uh, Jay Brashears from Duke. Why was a six-four guy playing second base? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, he had a pretty outstanding 2023. He is big and physical. The the positions, it's interesting because you, you asked that Nolan Gorman playing second base. I never thought would happen at the major league level, and he's doing that. So I guess <laughs> I guess everyone is just getting bigger and more physical now. Maybe it's the arm. Um, there are some questions about where he's going to end up defensively. So I think the fact that we had those defensive questions might probably Duke did as well. Maybe they felt putting him at the, at the keystone was a little bit better than, than third base. Um, he does some, have some above average power. It's mostly pull side power. Um, the contact rate and swing decisions have been pretty solid as well. Um, so I actually have less feel for Bashir's based on like where he went, uh, versus where we had him ranked. I don't think we had him ranked too highly if we had him ranked at all. Um, so I'm curious to see what they've uncovered with him because the Padres do tend to take some of these kind of off the radar guys yeah. and make me look foolish after the fact. So I'll be I'll be interested to see what he looks like. So in round eight, we skipped over Cannon Camp, another six foot six high school uh, righty pitcher this time. Uh, did you mm-hmm. get a chance to, to get a look at him at all? Yeah, he's like a, another really physical player i think he's more advanced physically than a guy like dickerson he's just more filled out now six foot six 225 pounds um good feel for change up pitches in the low 90s gets to 93 94 a little bit uh and he was actually probably i'm, I'm pulling up their their bonus information now but the padres basically went under slot with four of their first five players homer bush was the only player um in that top six round range that got a slot deal and all of that money uh, in the top 10 rounds essentially went to Cannon Camp. So the fact that they signed him to this $625,000 bonus, like based on money, they view him as the second best player in their draft class, which is kind of interesting. Um, again, the Padres, I, I feel like are one of these teams that are just not afraid to take high school pitching at all. And that's typically a demographic where some teams are just out on. Um, it's a high spin curveball, three solid pitches, Lots of strength now, pretty compact arm action. 
So there are a lot of things that he does pretty well. Um, I, I can't say that he was like this consensus top player, but everyone that I talked to uh, liked the tools that he had, liked the physicality that he had, and clearly the Padres did too. I just talking so, about a, a high school pitcher that's pitching tonight and Robbie Snelling. Uh, when man. I left, yeah, when I left, it was the third inning. He had four strikeouts. Um, God, I mean, I know he's the 39th you know, pick overall, but he has just come on the scene and been insane. We were talking about potential like pitcher of the year candidates, and Snelling was one of the guys that I mentioned. He's just been phenomenal, and I'm hopeful that Dylan Lesko gets healthy once he gets going. I know he's thrown a little bit early on, but, I mean, he was probably the best high school pitcher that I've seen. So getting both him and Snelling and seeing how Snelling has done, I think that's tremendous. I mean, those are two two players we viewed as first-round talents, and going back-to-back with them is is a lot of fun for the Padres. Yeah, Lesko's made a couple of starts in Elsinore. Okay, so to wrap up our, our notes here on the draft, um, I count 11 undrafted free agents signed by the Padres. I think that's the most out of anybody, any major league organization right now. Um, is that kind of taking the place of the later rounds? Because the draft now only runs 20 run, rounds deep. It used to go you know, 30, 40 plus rounds. Um, and why do you think the Padres are being so aggressive on that front? Yeah, I think it probably just depends on um, spots available in the minor league system. There are some teams like... The Red Sox and the Dodgers, I don't I don't think they took um, more than a couple players if they took any at all. Like, I, I still don't know if the Dodgers have any NDFA. So a lot of it is just the amount of space if you have APs lined up for those players. Again, I do think the Padres do an excellent job with their area scouts getting out and finding players who are under the radar. They're highly competitive in that space. And I think this is an area where... If you have a strong process, if you trust your scouts, if you're not super model heavy, you can do a lot of damage with players in this range. Like these NDFA players, these undrafted free agent players are going to be the 28th round surprise picks that you hear about from time to time. Like most of these guys are not going to turn into anything, but when they do, it's going to be an awesome story and it's going to be an immense value add for the organization because most of these players are signing for $20,000. They're It's almost like replacement level draft prospects at that point. But I think it's a combination of one, they have the spots available in the minors to actually give them some innings, give them a chance. And two, their area scouts just do an excellent job um, kind of beating down the path and, and, and finding players where maybe other teams just, just don't have as much information. So I think it's probably a combination of both those. Now, so we now know that teams can spend up to $150,000 on undrafted free agents. Um, and I was able to get a little bit of some numbers. They were able to throw some decent cash at some of these guys. So they signed two high school seniors and one uh, junior college guy. Uh, do you guys have any write-ups about Langston Burkett, the pitcher that they took, uh, or Dante Grant, the lefty hitting outfielder out of Central Arizona? Or I'm sorry, no, he's I- out of Piala High School. No, I, I don't have as much. And yeah, I'm looking at their numbers too. I think they took five players who they signed for a hundred thousand or more in that range. Um, and again, if you look there, there are some players drafted in the six to 10 round range of the draft who are getting less money, particularly on the college side. So I do think they do a lot of great work there. I don't have great feel for any of those players, but once we get, I'd say once we get past the, like really in the, the seniors come into play late on day two, but once we get into day three, there, there are plenty of guys that I don't know about. So we'll see if we, we find out more about them, if they turn into uh, legit prospects in the minors, but I do trust the Padres uh, process in, in general. So it'll be interesting to see. All right. So I've got one question about on more on the scouting side. Yeah. You know, we hear these stories about, okay, you went to go see 
player, you went to go see Chris Sale, and then the, the pitcher on the other side happened to be Jacob DeGrom, and that's how he got discovered. Have you had any experiences like that where you went to go see player A and then player B that wasn't on your list wound up popping your eyes? Well, that's a good question. I'm sure that has happened. I don't have like a very obvious one right now. And a lot of the events I go to in the summer are like, it's all the best high school players in any class. So there's just a ton of guys who are going to pop out. And in some years I've like gone in with specific targets in mind In other years, I've just kind of said, okay, I just want to see who, who shows out to me. Try to think if there are any college series I've gone to. And I've been like, wow, this guy's really impressive. No really good ones jump out to me. And I think the way scouting works in general, like that honestly happens less it probably happens more often with college um, just because they're always going to be solid players on any series that you see. Um, but for the, especially for the high school summer, almost all the players are legitimate prospects in some capacity. And it's more of like, you're trying to get eyes on everyone and see who stands out. So I really don't have a great answer for that one, unfortunately. Okay. So then how about on the, on the listing side? So you're one of multiple people at baseball America that covers the draft, right? So putting this list together and ranking guys and all of this, um, I'm sure you guys have discussions about who you like and who this guy likes, and you're not so high. Um, do you have any, any discussions like that, that, that come to mind either this year or in prior years mm-hmm. and who else yeah, covers so think- the, the draft from BA? So I cover the draft full time. I'm like the lead draft writer of Baseball America. We have a few other people who pitch in and help. Peter Flaherty uh, does college and draft for us. Uh, we also have Jeff Ponce joins in. Kyle Glazer does a lot of reporting on the call or on the California side of things. Uh, Bill Mitchell, who's out in Arizona, does some work for us. Ben Badler does work on the underclass players in the Northeast. Um, so it's a big team that pitches in, but I'm I'm the only one covering it. I would say full time year round. It is interesting. People have different types of players who they find themselves liking. Each year, it seems like we have our own personal cheese balls. Those are players that that we really like that are not necessarily the top 15. That's like a baseball America term, a personal cheese ball. So you have to keep that one going. I think one of mine from this year was Sammy Stafura, who the Reds took in the second round. I got to see him at the area code games last year. He might be a decent example of a guy who I wasn't expecting to like. Um, but just really impressed me all around. It's a great swing, really good defensive actions. He runs well. He hit the ball to all fields. Uh, and then he he moved up from, I think we had him in the 100 to 200 range on our preseason list. And he added strength. He added speed. He really impressed scouts this spring. Um, and we wound up with him in like the 30 to 40 range on our board. So he's a big mover up that I liked quite a bit. I think I think a player that I like, and I think maybe everyone at Baseball America is just more skeptical and afraid of compared to the industry is Enrique Bradfield, the outfielder at Vanderbilt. We're just really uncertain of like what the offensive profile is going to be with him. Uh, but we still have him ranked 16, even though I think all of us personally would have him lower just because we try to reflect the industry's consensus as much as we can on this list. I think that's the best way to provide value to our readers. Like, I can't see all these players in person, but if I can solicit information from scouts who are doing this full time and getting paid by teams to evaluate players, hopefully that leads to a, a better list that's more informative for for fans who want to know who these players are going to be in a few years. Right, and that's why you've got readers like me that pay to subscribe and you know and, and read the information that's behind a paywall because there's a reason you know, that stuff right. shouldn't be just free out there. You, it, you guys, well, we you guys do a great job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's this is your career and you travel around and all that stuff isn't free. Well, we really appreciate you taking Absolutely. some time out of your day here to talk with us. Um, do you have any overarching comments about the Padre system? Is there anybody coming through that that you've seen in years past that you want us to keep an eye on for you? 
Yeah, let me pull up there. I actually don't remember who who all is in the Padres. I mean, Ethan Salas. Like, I mean, you guys have probably talked about Ethan Salas more. more yeah, have you had a chance to, to see tired him of talking about him? Yeah, no, nah, we never. He, I haven't he, seen he, him personally, keeps, but it's like the hyperbole's <laughs> up there, and then he keeps doing something that puts the roof yeah. higher. Well, I I mean, my personal favorite in the system is Dylan Lesko because again, I think he's the best pitcher that I've seen at the high school level. But the way Ethan Salas just receives the ball as a 17 year old and what he's done at this level at his age is unprecedented for me. And so it's kind of remarkable to see that. So those two would definitely be the guys that I'm like really excited about in the system. Can you think of anybody that at his age was doing anything like this in, in in affiliated ball? Like it has me wondering what Bryce Harper would have been doing if he was not in high school at age 16, 17. Yeah. It's for me, especially I've only been doing it seven years. It's, it's definitely the, most impressive for a young player that I've seen. I, I can't think of who else would be in that in that range. All right. Well, it's time for us to sign out. So we appreciate you taking the time, um, and we'll have to hit you up again maybe next year when draft time's coming up. Yeah, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. This was fun. Thanks, Carl. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Hey,